This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I share with you a new deep dive into another case. By sharing a victim's story, we hope to put the pressure on you so that you can get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Hey everyone, this is part two. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you go and do that. And if you're here early on our Patreon fan club, love ya. And if you're listening at the regular release date next Wednesday, we're so glad that you're here. Are you ready for today's case? During Paul's trial for the murders of Natalie and Deborah, his defense testifies about an alibi. I, I, I don't know what his alibi was. My guess is my guess is his alibi was he was in jail. I don't know. <laughs> Paul's defense argues that this was a crime of passion, telling the jury that because of the rage and anger Paul had built up over an extended period of time, this was a very emotional situation. The defense says that finding Paul guilty of anything more than second degree murder would be a travesty. And even that wasn't the verdict they hoped for. Their best case scenario was that Paul would be found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. They presented Paul as a victim of a volatile relationship with a, quote, mind clouded by passion and anger. The defense even comes up with these special instructions they want read to the jury when deliberations come. The court refuses these instructions, which Paul later argues about in an appeal. The three instructions Paul thought should have been undoubtedly presented to the jury during his trial were, first, the passion necessary to constitute heat of passion need not mean rage or anger, but may be any violent, intense, overwrought, or enthusiastic emotion which causes a person to act rashly and without deliberation and reflection. The second, no specific time of provocation is required to generate the passion necessary to constitute heat of passion, and verbal provocation may be sufficient. And third, a defendant may act in the heat of passion at the time of the killing as a result of a series of events which occur over a considerable period of time, where the provocation extends for a long period of time. You must take such period of time into account in determining whether there was a sufficient a sufficient cooling period for the passion to subside. The burden is upon the prosecution to establish beyond a reason, reasonable doubt that the defendant did not act in the heat of passion. And in response to Paul's appeal, the court was like, sorry, but you can't just make up your own instructions that some were legally incorrect and the court found them to have a misplaced fixation on the timeline. They basically say that Paul wants this break because his emotions were built up over time. However, there is no evidence that Paul was provoked in any way by Nap, Natalie or Deborah besides that one incident on July 7th. That's when the police had come to his home to break up that fight between him and Natalie. 
So for the court, this timeline actually presents evidence to them that he had a sufficient cooling period following the incident. He commits the murders more than a month later, and they don't believe this was due to a heat of the moment thing. There is no documented provoking from Natalie or Deborah within that last month leading up to their murders, and the court finds this to be plenty of time for any passion to subside. So instead of using the defense instructions for the jury, the court presents them with the standard manslaughter instructions from C-A-L-J-I-C, defining manslaughter as such a passion as naturally would be aroused in the mind of an ordinarily reasonable person in the same circumstances. Which, I don't think that is how an ordinary person would react to getting divorced. No. (laughs) Like, you can be sad, you could be even angry, but you don't, like, slash tires and leave notes and stalk them with a knife and break into their house and kill them. And kill two people. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of which had nothing to do with your marriage. In front of your kid. Literally. Like that is so messed up. So during this trial, the prosecution presents all the evidence I spoke about earlier. The bloody laundry, the blood found on Paul's motorcycle and inside his home, the cigarettes and checkbook left behind. It was a pretty slam dunk case with an obvious perpetrator who had been showing signs of stalking leading up to the double homicide. Nicole also bravely testifies against the dad she had loved, who betrayed her in the worst way when he killed her mom in front of her. This was the last time Nicole ever saw her dad face to face, although she did not testify facing him. The chair was turned towards the jury and locked so that Nicole couldn't turn to look at Paul. She testifies that her dad was the person she witnessed stabbing her mom. It's when Nicole is being carried out of the courtroom that she makes eye contact with Paul. He mouths to her, I love you. And this was a super confusing time for her. She told me she does remember him loving her so it didn't feel fake. And people from all sides would pull at her regarding her testimony during this trial. The defense had argued that Nicole's testimony was coached. They claimed the officer who interviewed her and her maternal grandparents helped her to believe it was her dad she saw. The appeal that Paul will file states that his daughter's testimony should not have been allowed and was ineffective. He said there were inconsistencies with what she said. And the magistrate judge is like, yeah, I'm not sure if you know this, but like cross-examination of a child is, quote, a treacherous task. So he's saying, like, she, like, didn't say everything exact. And the judge is like, yeah, a child being cross-examined could be very confused. Oh, yeah. 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 I know later on, one of her, she does reconnect with some of her dad's family. And her dad's sister tries to ask her, like, are you sure that it was your dad? Like she's trying to tell her that it was false because she did say the guy was wearing a mask and all of this stuff. And Nicole said she started to question herself even like, did I like give a false testimony? Was I like manipulated just because people were at her so hard, you know? And she said she went to one of her maternal aunts. So one of her mom's sisters and just like told them her concern And they let her know, like, regardless of your testimony, like, that meant nothing. Like, your dad was going 
to prison because there was so much evidence. So how old did she end up when she testified? How old was she? So she said she testified the following year. So she would have been like six or seven. Yeah. Really young to be testifying against your dad. That would be really hard. That would be. Uh, The last time I saw him was in the courtroom when I testified. Uh, my grandmother requested that they lock the chair so because she told she told the prosecuting attorney I didn't want to look at my dad which I never said that she she didn't want me to look at him apparently which to me it probably would have been better if I would have been looked at him looked him in an eye so the chair was locked I couldn't look at my father and I remember I kept trying to turn the chair but it was locked when I was testifying and I couldn't after I was done testifying I was carried out, and uh, my that's when I saw my father. And I looked directly at him, and he 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 uh, lipped to me, "I love you." I was confusing, um, but I do recall him loving me. So I don't think it wasn't like he didn't mean it. I'm sure he did love me. Uh, part of me thinks that. Maybe he killed my mom thinking he would get away with it and get custody of all of us. Once the trial concludes, the jury finds Paul Roop guilty of the first-degree murder of Natalie Roop and the second-degree murder of Deborah Robbins. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which I think it's second-degree murder for Deborah because I'm assuming they're thinking he didn't... He wasn't planning. Yeah. He planned to go in and kill Natalie, although I'm not sure he wasn't like, I mean, he knew Deborah lived there. I know. And he did stuff to her car. Yeah. So I'm not sure he actually really wasn't planning to kill her, but the jury believed that he was definitely planning to kill Natalie and then possibly kill Deborah just for being there and being a witness. Life for Nicole and her siblings is much different going forward. Nicole especially felt this sense of pressure and blame put on her, and she described growing up in her grandparents' home as abusive in many ways. I got punished more than my siblings. Um, I got treated differently than my siblings, and I never understood. The only thing that I could come up with in my mind is that my grandmother believed somehow it was my fault that my mother was dead. And, and, um... When the court granted my uh, grandparents custody, my grandmother was court ordered to put me and my sister in uh, therapy, which she never did. Like she did put me in therapy for a very short period of time, but like she would complain that I was playing in therapy. I'm supposed to be talking, not playing. And so she pulled me out and then would send me to another one and complain I was doing that again and then just stopped sending me to therapy. So I never, ever got therapy. By age 14, Nicole and her siblings are pulled from their grandparents' home after Nicole comes forward with sexual abuse allegations against her grandfather. Oh, my goodness. She just like ends up having such a hard life. That is so sad. Because she just already went through too much for a child. Yeah. So soon after she does come forward with these allegations, a judge does rule that Nicole made the allegations up and the kids are sent back to their grandparents' home. But Nicole told me she refused to move back in. Instead, she remains in the foster care system. 
Nicole loses contact with her maternal family members and her siblings. Later on, her younger sister and brother would be removed from the grandparents' home again. Instead, they were placed with a maternal aunt. Nicole was hurt at at the time that this aunt took her siblings in, but refused to take her in. And for me, first, let's always start with believing children when they come to you with a sexual abuse allegation. And then I can see, like, with a judge ruling that it was made up, I guess I can understand where it would validate someone's feelings who already didn't believe her. Although the system's not perfect, so just because, like, a judge ruled that doesn't mean she was lying. And, like, my thing is, even if that was the case, like, even if she was lying, which I don't think she was, do the adults in this situation not have, like, the mind space or the empathy to look at her like she's been through a lot of trauma so it's almost something where it's like we just need to be here for her regardless of if they believed her or not yeah well what were the kids removed for the second time she said later on when they were removed again it was because they just found them unfit and then they were moved. I don't know if it was because they were too old or if they just like continued to look into the allegations. I don't know, but they were removed after she was already out. The judge for some reason ruled that I made it up. So my sister got to go back home and I said I wasn't going back home. So I stayed in foster care and my whole family abandoned me. My grandmother wanted nothing to do with me because she said I was making it up to break up the family. I mean, there were signs. Um, When I was in second grade, I peed myself. And everybody, all the adults just assumed it's because of the trauma of my mother's death was why I was peeing myself. Instead of looking into what they should have been looking into. She did reconnect with me at at one point in time. Um, I was 17. I had to have gallbladder surgery. And um, so I, because I I always tried to reconnect with my grandmother. It wasn't like I wasn't trying. So at this point in time, she did talk to me. And she goes, oh, yeah, that runs in the family. But usually that happens after you have your first kid. I think at this point in her life, she thought she was going to die, which that happened several times in her life and she would um, apologize for everything she uh, how she treated me and everything but she still didn't believe me about the sexual abuse like she believed it had happened but refused to believe it was her husband she tried to pin it on my great-grandfather who lived with us for a short while she said are you sure it wasn't him he was going senile and I just said I said, no, it was not him. And that was the end of that. From 14 to 17 years old, Nicole is in the foster care system. At first, she wants to reconnect with her dad's side of the family. Maybe she can find someone she connects with. She knows nothing about her dad's family. She didn't even at this time know how many brothers and sisters he had. But she is able to meet an uncle and an aunt. And after spending the holidays with her uncle's family, going over there for Thanksgiving and Christmas... This uncle decides to stop contact with Nicole. She's told by a social worker that he is doing this because Nicole keeps asking him to buy her things. So this hurt her. It was another blow to a life filled with rejection by her family. So sad. I know. I was like, I'm so sorry. She just needs someone to love her. 
she just wanted someone to be there for her. So by 16 years old, she's living in a group home and this is a combined home. Some of the teens living here were on probation while others were in foster care. She's noticing that other girls living here with her are writing to prisoners. This is when she decides to contact her dad by writing a letter. They wouldn't talk about the murders because Nicole knows he would never admit to murdering Natalie and Deborah. Still to this day, like I said, he has not taken responsibility. Just this year, he files another appeal. Paul has always maintained that he believes the murders were committed due to a random burglary, although nothing in the home had been stolen. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, I'm sure. So in his appeal, he points to the fact that the investigators did not get the fingerprints of those at the home when the police arrived. He says that if police had collected fingerprints from Natalie, Deborah, Deborah's brother, her cousin Cameron, and the other family members at the scene, then they could have used their fingerprints against six fingerprints collected within the home that didn't match Paul. And Paul is saying that if there were any fingerprints that did not match the others at the scene and did not match Paul, then that fingerprint could belong to a stranger that broke into the woman's home. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he's frustrated all of (laughs) those that don't match him. Six that That don't don't match match him. him. Although his cigarette carton with his fingerprints on it is right next to Natalie's body. Yes, and he thinks they should have tested everyone's, including Natalie and Deborah, seen that those didn't connect to anybody. And that would mean there was a random stranger in there, which this is a far stretch. Like, that doesn't exonerate you. The court agrees, telling Paul that there is nothing exculpatory about a home having fingerprints inside of it. Yeah, there could be a ton. Yeah, like... And there's people in and out of your house all the time, like if you have people over. So because the police did not collect fingerprints, along with Paul claiming officers did not find who stole Deborah's firearm, nor did they interview officers regarding Natalie and Deborah's burglary of his home, Paul suggests he was not granted effective assistance of counsel. He thinks his lawyers should have moved for sanctions under People v. Hitch which is a case where officers failed to preserve breath samples in drunk driving prosecutions, and it was ruled that sanctions will be invoked for any loss of evidence. A sanction in criminal law is described as penalties imposed on those who commit crimes. So basically, if they don't, like, preserve evidence, they'll have a penalty. The court rules that Paul's claims are baseless. The investigation is required to preserve the evidence that is expected to play a significant role in the suspect's defense. Paul's arguments do not fit this criteria as he isn't really arguing for the preservation of evidence, but for the evidence he feels should have been collected. The court doesn't believe the murdered women's fingerprints were necessary, and his claims of burglary at his home and the burglary of Deborah's firearms are speculative. One of the final things that stood out to me in Paul's appeals was his argument that he should have been granted a change of venue for his trial since the murders were so publicized around the area at this time. And that may have been true. But it was Paul that failed to renew his motion for a change of venue once the jury selection was complete. 
A magistrate judge ruled that this caused him to procedurally default on the issue, and a California Court of Appeals rules that this waived any right to a change of venue. Gotta follow the rules. Oh yeah, so around the time, so when I went into foster care, apparently even though my father's in prison, he was contacted because he does have some parental rights, I guess. <laughs> he had the right to know where I were and have a little say in who got custody of me, I guess. Um, because I remember reading in the court documents that he said he never wanted my grandparents to get custody of us because he felt they only wanted us for the, the money because my mother had a life insurance policy and also then the social security uh, death benefits. Um, he believed that it was a monetary decision. But when I was, I wanna say 16, I was in a different group home and this particular group home, there was a lot of troubled kids. Uh, some were not foster kids, some of them were probation kids. So you're having this mixed crowd and sometimes they're not that great of an influence. And a lot of the other girls in my home were writing people in prison. And I thought, well, I know someone in prison. I'm going to write my dad. Yeah, I had curiosity. So I wrote, I knew he would not admit that he killed my mother. So I felt like that, that was, if I was going to write him, there was no reason to bring that up because he wasn't going to admit it. Because when I was 15, I met his sister who was trying to convince me that maybe I, my testimony was wrong and it wasn't my father. Are you sure? Because you said he was wearing a mask. And so at that point in time, I questioned myself a little bit, like, did I give a false testimony? Because my grandmother was pushing me to testify a certain way. My other aunt, my mom's younger sister told me, because I went to her and told her this, and she said, your testimony was irrelevant. There was so much evidence. So because I already had that background where I knew he wasn't going to admit to it, he still to this day says he didn't do it. In fact, he recently filed an appeal just this year. I decided not to bring him up. I just decided to ask him questions about my mom, ask him questions about growing up. That's basically the only thing I would write to him about. Going back to Nicole at Severn at 17 years old, Nicole decides to stop writing her dad. She gives no warning. She just stops cold turkey. She was desperate to get out of the group home. So when her mom's cousin decides to welcome her into their family, she feels that she fears that they will not go through with this if she continues contact with her dad. So she just stops writing to him because she doesn't want them to mm. reject her and tell her that like she's no longer welcome. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, one of my mom's cousins rescued me out of the foster care system when I was 17. Close to like, I was like almost, I was what, a year away from graduation. So when I went to go live with them because of how it was when I lived with my grandmother who was just adamant I couldn't have any contact with my dad's family, I was afraid to continue writing him. I was afraid they wouldn't like it and then just would decide they didn't want to take me in and I wanted out of that group home because that place was horrible. <laughs> so I stopped writing my father abruptly. I never told him I was stopping writing. I just stopped. So I'm sure he was wondering what happened because I never told him anything. I just disappeared. So Nicole did decide to write Paul after our interview and he wrote her back before this episode was set to release. 
He didn't give her a case number telling her he doesn't remember it, although she finds that strange due to him filing an appeal this year. But he tells her that his mom, her grandma, had records of all the case documents. Unfortunately, Nicole's grandma had passed away and she isn't sure where these records would have gone. He goes on in the letter to say, quote, I'm not sure if you will want to continue communicating with me. I would not blame you if you didn't. I am certainly not the same person that I was so many years ago. I was selfish and only concerned about myself. I was a very good provider and made it a point that my children had all the things I never had as a child. That's mostly where my parenting ended, although I did spend some quality time with you kids. Loved playing hide and seek and taking you fishing. I was mostly worried about work and getting ahead in life. I was obsessed with work 10 to 14 hours a day. I had a rather brutal upbringing with my father. He was a mean drunk. I wanted my kids to never have the life like mine. And then I took actions that made your life worse than mine. The rough life you had was my fault and only my fault. I loved my children and still love my children, but I wasn't raised to know how to show it. I'm so sorry for the life I put upon you. I was a horrible husband to your mother because I was not faithful or loyal to her and I took her for granted. I really deserved the things she did to me towards our end, but I was too stupid to see it and I wanted revenge for the wrongs. I imagined in her actions I was wrong, not her. I don't expect you to ever forgive me. I don't believe I deserve that consideration from you or Melissa. I don't deserve a daughter that kind. I do truly hope you will continue to communicate with me. I need to make amends, but don't know how it is possible with the great harm I caused you, Melissa, and Joshua. Which for someone who maintains their innocence, this also... I know. I was like, so did he kind of admit to it? Yeah. So she shared it on TikTok and was like, do you think this is him apologizing? Which to me, like, yeah. kind of, it sounds like he is apologizing for the murder. Maybe after his, because this was literally just within the last few weeks that he just wrote this to her. Like, right now. Sounds like it. So, I don't know if his appeal this year, because it didn't get granted, if he's finally like, screw it. Like, I'm here. I'm done. Like, I'm sure he's super old at this point. I don't know how old he is. Like I said, there's like very limited information. I could actually probably ask Nicole, but yeah, I just, when I heard that letter, I was a little shocked because I was like, well, yeah. he pretty much sounds like he admits to it. Like he's saying, you know, it's all his fault. And was she like glad to get it from him? Like, I mean, he apologized to her and. He apologized for his actions. And I'm not sure how she feels like cons like with her relationship with him. I know she mostly wants information from him. So she said she's like curious to yeah. write him because she wants to know more about her life even. Like what her life was like, how they were growing up, more about her mom, more about her dad. Like she doesn't know anything because like things didn't go great. Mm-hmm obviously after her parents are out of her life so I don't think they were really talking to her about everything and yeah so she's just going to try and get the case numbers and then I'm not sure if she forgives him she did tell me she does think he belongs in prison and doesn't think he should be out 
I've recently been trying to like remember some of this stuff and like I want to read about it because I'm not a little kid anymore I can read about it now but like because the case is so old when I call the courthouse to try to get info like it's not in the computer it's somewhere in a file and and they can't seem to find it so I thought um, I had called the public defender's office that would have represented my father to see if I could get info from them and they were like oh they can't because it's special privilege I'd have to ask my father to get give me the case number I just want the case number because then it'll make it easier for the courthouse to look it up for me <laughs> and I was just like when they told me I had to contact my father I said are you serious you do realize I testified against him <laughs> I'm sure he'll give it to me because it seems like people who do these kind of things are narcissists um, so he'll probably think I want the info to try to help him get out so <laughs> I feel I feel like he should stay there but at the same time he's the one who created me he is my father so like I have some sympathy that he's in there but then I don't because you belong there I didn't talk with Nicole's sister So I'm not sure how her life felt following the murders, but there had to be difficulties dealing with something like this. She would most likely have no memories of her parents as she was three years old when it all happened. She was in and out of foster care for at least a little while, so that is tough. And Melissa and Joshua seem to pretty much stay within the same homes and grow up together. I think they both suffered you know, through difficult times following the murder of their mother and incarceration of their father. As an adult, Joshua takes his own life. Aww. I know. So sad. So he's passed away now, and it's just Nicole and Melissa left. However, they still do not have any contact to this day. Oh. So. By choice? Yes. So Melissa is, like, frustrated with Nicole for the sexual abuse allegations because she wasn't able to continue living with her grandparents and she Mm. wanted to continue living there. So she has always been, like, frustrated at her for that and chooses not to be in contact. So I feel very bad for all of them and I feel, like, really bad for Nicole just who, like, had to see it and was the oldest and... It's just... It's a lot. How one person's actions can just devastate a family. Yeah. This is the ripple effect of domestic violence. I remember this and I didn't understand what it was. I kept hearing my name being called and I would run to my grandparents' room and say, yes, what do you want? We didn't call you. So I like kind of think my mom's spirit was calling me. But I didn't understand it because I was too little to understand that's who was calling me. I thought it was my grandparents. And uh, right after she died, I had nightmares every night. I'd like relive it, relive the murders in my dreams. Uh, What still uh, shows up in my life today, I'm deathly afraid of the dark. I can't sleep without a light on. Driving at night is problematic for me. I get super paranoid that someone's after me, following me gonna do something to me that I don't like going out at night at all and I over I I I also overreact to a loud noise like a normal person a loud noise would be nothing I jump and I scream if there's any kind of sudden loud noise 
I have very few memories of my mom. The one memory I do have is I remember um, she used to dance with me and play music. Like, that's like the only memory I really have. <laughs> I miss a lot of like what I could have had because like I see a lot of people doing things with their moms and I'll never have that. Or they get in a bind, they call their mom up for help. I get in a bind, there's no one to call to help. <laughs> Nicole, like I said, does hope to find out more information on this case as she finds case numbers and gains access to, you know, the files. She often wonders about Deborah's daughter and how she's doing in the aftermath of this tragedy. Unfortunately, due to the limited amount of information, I wasn't able to find out a lot about Deborah. It's painful to think that Deborah was just caught in the crossfire of the domestic abuse her friend was suffering. According to a church minister, David Plague of the Church of Christ, Deborah was, an a- was active in service work. I'm not sure if he meant she was working in service work or she volunteered her time. I'm assuming volunteered her time. But in the article, it made it sound like that's what she did for work. Nicole thought it's possible that Deborah was in the Army Reserves with her mom, but she's not super sure because, again, she doesn't have all of the files. Deborah had attended that Church of Christ since she was a child, and David describes her as a remarkable woman. He talked about how caring she was and how often she would reach out to others and get involved, um, like just like offering a helping hand. I'm positive that both Deborah Robbins and Natalie Roop were amazing mothers who would do anything for their children. These women were brave and strong, just doing the best they could, navigating life as single mothers. They didn't let their fear of Paul stop them, and they actively fought for themselves, asking for help and taking precautions to stop his erratic behavior. Their children needed them. The opportunity to raise their baby should have never been taken from them by the selfish acts of an abuser. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I research, write, edit, and host this podcast. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palette cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Find us on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast, Instagram at True Crime Expod, or Twitter at True Crime Exposed. Hi. My name is Charlie Waters. Today we are going to be talking about a willow tree. Did you know that my little sister is is named Willow? I'll have Willow say hi right now. Hi. Hi. Can you say trees? Hi. Mama. Bye-bye. That's my little sister named Willow. So we love willow trees. We being willows have arched branches that hang down. This creates a canopy look. They're one of the fastest growing plants in the world. They can grow 10 feet tall every year. This is because they absorb so much water. They're planted in flooded areas or areas that need drained. They have really strong, deep and wide roots. And we might be biased, but they're the most beautiful tree. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Bye. Today, I'm going to highlight the organization Shepherd's Door. They are a domestic violence resource center. You can find them online at shepherddoor.org. That's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-D-O-O-R. You can call the center at 626-765-9967 or 833-646-1527. They're located in Pasadena, California. And if you visit their website, you'll be able to learn about their center, how you can volunteer, the services they offer, and things that people have, you know, said about them that have received their help. They were established in March of 2000 to assist and support victims of domestic violence and prevent the cycle of domestic violence through youth education, public awareness, and collaboration with community partners. Their belief is everybody deserves to live in a safe environment free of abuse and violence.